1: new books in economics brought to you by EAEPE, the european association for evolutionary political economy
0: welcome to this new episode of new books in economics i'm your host Andrea bernardi from oxford brooks university and today i'm here to talk about a great new book in economics and management, and this is China and Global Value Chains, published in 2018 by Routledge. I'm here with one of the authors, Shimos Grimes. Um, the book is uh, was written also by a second author called Yu Tao Sun. Uh, welcome Shimos, and please uh, tell us something about your background and also the background of your co-author.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um... So my own background is I'm an economic geographer, and uh, for the last 10 years, I've been focusing uh, mainly on China, on technology development in China, and particularly looking at the role of foreign companies in that development, and uh, also looking at how China has become integrated into global value chains, particularly in the technology sectors, and um, so mainly really by uh, the influence of foreign technology companies in China. And my co-author is, um, uh, comes from a slightly different background. He's more in the area of management, with a strong background in economics. He's in Dalian University in the Northern part of China. So we've been collaborating for the last number of years, writing a series of papers about these topics. And uh, the book basically has brought together a number of these papers, uh, elaborated on some of the things.
0: Well, the topic is not only very interesting, but also very timely. If I can start from basically pi- page one, uh, the first line is uh, President Trump has raised the intriguing question of bringing the manufacturing of companies like Apple back from China to the US. So this book is about a very, very, very timely uh, debate about whether it is right, it is uh, possible, it is helpful to deal with China uh, adopting a, a protectionist strategy. And yeah. this book is uh, is exactly about this in uh, trying to explain uh, what China gained uh, through its uh, strong involvement in the past uh, 20 30 years of globalization and what the rest of the world has gained and given the current situation what is possible to do or not to do what is not possible to do in uh, in terms of regulating the current uh, exchange of, uh, of goods, in particular, the global value chains in technological products. So uh, maybe I could ask you, what is the motivation of writing this book? And, and what is your, your position uh, in on this very, very timely topic?
1: Well, I think the main motivation for writing the book, really, as I was saying, was to bring together a number of papers published in various journals, and which have developed different aspects of this research area. It is, as you say, a very timely topic. And it is something that uh, many, many scholars are grappling with to try to actually understand the effects of globalization um, in how that is um, requiring really a new type of methodology really for, for researching these topics. And uh, it's very interesting, for example, that um, large organizations like the International Labour Organization and the World Bank and various other organizations like that are now beginning to focus much more Global value chains. But um, it's, it's, not, it's complicated. And uh, previously, most of our um, <clears throat> research was based on, on the nation state and on the domestic market. But as globalization has become much more significant in the last number of decades, it, um, it's much more important now to actually understand how different regions of the world have become uh, more and more integrated into international markets. And um, in fact, I was just rereading a book there in the past few days, um, called New Argonals, which was published in 2006, by Annelie Saxilian of Stanford University. And in that book, she explains how uh, many migrants from um, Asia and from other countries had come to uh, Silicon Valley and had been trained uh, in Stanford University and other universities like that, and then had gone back home and, and connected through their networks various regions, India and China, Taiwan and Singapore and so on, and that, you know, gradually these sort of uh, value chains began to emerge uh, by by the internationalization of the economic activity. But uh, trying to actually map out the connections, you know, between the different regions is not straightforward.
0: Maybe uh, some of our listeners might not be uh, aware of the definition of global value chain, uh, or even if they are, they probably they are not aware of the complexity of a global value chain, in particular in, uh, in high-tech products. Uh, uh, maybe the simple is a computer, the most complex is uh, the production of an airplane. Maybe tell us something about this to explain about what extent of complexity we are discussing about.
1: Yes, okay. Well, I mean, basically, it it goes back to um, the uh, offshoring of them, particularly by multinational companies, you know, from the more advanced regions of the world, of their production activities. So, um, the offshoring of manufacturing, in particular, in the in the ICT sector, which is really what we're focusing on in this book, and that um, over the last say thirty or forty years, uh, the major global manufacturing companies. In order to try to sort of um, improve their competitiveness, they began to um, set up branches in various parts of the world, in particular uh, cities and around the world. And um, China, of course, was one of the most attractive uh, places because, it, um, because of the low cost of manufacturing initially, but increasingly because of the attractiveness of um, a very large. Uh, uh, so sort of volume of um, talent production in, in those. So the, the possibility of employing a large numbers of uh, engineers in, in in the eastern part of China, particularly urban eastern coastal zones. And this was also very much connected with um, what happened in Taiwan initially, because the IT sector uh, was initially developed in, in uh, Taiwan, and of course, in neighboring countries like Japan and Korea as well. But that gradually over time, uh, the major technology companies began to sort of uh, offshore more of the production activities from Taiwan and from Korea and from Japan uh, to mainland China. And what is interesting is how over time uh, the value chain, the value chains involved uh, become more sophisticated. So the whole idea of focusing. Because of the internationalization of economic activity, it became important for researchers um, to develop new frameworks, which went beyond the, just a simple domestic market, even though most of the statistical material that's available still continues to be based on the national domestic market. And we're still talking about international trade. And we're still talking about importing and exporting. But the point is that um, because of this offshoring, of uh, manufacturing activity in particular, uh, what, what has happened is that uh, different tasks have been sort of relocated to different regions of the world, and uh, depending, depending on their particular competitiveness. So for example, in the case of, of China, most of the assembly activities were located in China. But over time, this is beginning to change and the, um, you know, the actual activities in China are becoming more sophisticated. And one of the key, Components, of course, of this activity is property. But where does the intellectual property come from? I and mean, in some of the work that we have uh, researched for for this book, we have explained, of course, that much of the intellectual property is coming outside of China, but that um, China imports, if you like, uh, many components of different electronic products, then they are they are eventually assembled in China, and then either they are either exported to. Um, the advanced markets of the world or to other countries or they are uh, increasingly consumed in china I and mean, if you look particularly at um, the uh, example of the semiconductor sector this is obviously one of the key component areas of the semiconductor sector. and um, china consumes a, a, a huge a proportion and perhaps maybe more than 60 percent of all the global consumption of semiconductors in the world but what that actually means is that, um, that many global companies have operations in China or they have outsourced some of their activities to other companies in China, and that um, these semiconductors are uh, sent to China and they are uh, gradually uh, you know, used in the, in the assembly of electronic products. Now, China is becoming very, very concerned about the fact that um, its whole value chain tends to be. Subordinate role tends to be sort of a, a low value added role. So in or, in or, therefore, that means that, that China actually gets uh, much less benefit from the activities than the global corporations that really are controlling much of this uh, sector. So uh, in this way, then, uh, China has already, is in more recent years, is, it has developed a program uh, to try to develop its own semiconductor sector. But this is proving quite difficult. Uh, because of the um, significant control of intellectual property by some of the key advanced nodes in the ICT sector, of advanced countries.
0: But your book, in fact, is exactly also about uh, China struggling to become more uh, self-sufficient in uh, in the chain, uh, but also uh, still learning, learning a lot, and so, um, but. Actually, I would like now to make a jump but forgive me for this because I, now I'm jumping, jumping from the first line to the last line. The last line is about uh, in the conclusion there is a little mention of Brexit, the decision of uh, Britain on uh, the membership of the European Union. So what you just said, uh, that as a, an economic geographer, which is very difficult to map uh, the value chains, it is difficult to measure them, it is difficult to handle their complexity. So what, what's your opinion about uh, uh, the, the value chain between Europe and Britain, and the possibility that the, the, f- the freedom of movement of goods might become more problematic in the future. In this case, we refer predominantly to the automotive sector, for example. But as an economic geographer, what is your opinion about that specific value chain?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that um, one of the problems with um, Brexit situation, but also uh, similarly with um, um, the policy coming from Washington, is um, I think it shows a lack of understanding really of um, how interna- how international business uh, is actually conducted, how economic activity has become more internationalised in recent years. I mean, uh, one of the problems, of course, that has arisen is that because of globalisation, not everybody has benefited to the same extent. And I think yeah. that some of the politicians are not as aware that, in fact, um, you know, some of the um, you know, countries like, say, in, in Asia, particularly China, that, has, that have benefited in, in the sense that they have created employment for their people in, in those countries through, by participating in global value chains. But as I was saying earlier on, they haven't actually benefited to any great extent in terms of value added of the types of functions that are being carried out. In those in, in the in the particular locations, uh, in, say for example in China. Similarly, in the case of, of Brexit, it it's very much um, I think politicians looking at their own nation state almost as an isolated state, and not understanding, uh, you know how, you know participation in international um, economic activity is absolutely essential, and that um, you know it's a question of um, you know of trying to sort of uh, improve. You know, the, the, um, the benefits that arise, now, I mean, this, this can create problems, particularly for the Different regions of the United States have not benefited to the same extent as others. And the other problem that arises is that if you look at um, any sort of inner city in the United States, I look at the role of, uh, say, the ICT sector, for example. You could divide that city into two different groups of people. One would be blue-collar workers, for example. And the other might be investors in those companies. And naturally, the investors in the technology companies have been pushing for many years you know, to sort of increase their profitability, to improve the competitiveness. And that has resulted in, in uh, offshoring a lot of activity from, um, to China. But the problem, of course, is that in that in the in the functioning of that model. Um, the blue-collar workers obviously lose out. And uh, the politicians, of course, never really fully explain to people how the model is working. They obviously pretend to be representing both sides of the city. But the reality is that um, if you have a globalized model, some people are going to, lose some regions are going to do out more than others. And uh, you know, this obviously creates um, a of series of challenges, if you like, for politicians. But I, th- I think the fact is that they have to understand the complexity of the the value chains and how they actually work and not sort of continue on thinking in terms of um, just the domestic uh, economy of their own national state. That doesn't really make sense.
0: Well, this is very interesting. So, uh this is a matter of complexity but of course as you said there is an issue of imbalance and uh, distribution of the benefits and the costs Um, but your argument in favor because i suppose you are in favor of um, continuing uh, this type of of course allowing this type of economic interaction between nations so but you are in favor because this is providing overall long-term at, at macro level benefits or you are in favor because it would be impossible to to run our world in other ways
1: no i i'm in favor of it because i think it's just a it's just a realistic um, model to, to develop further and that um and if you look at it from the point of view of um, the major uh, global com- companies, particularly, say, American companies, they have benefited hugely from being involved in, in the Chinese market. For example. And obviously, most of those benefits have returned to the United States and have allowed increased um, investment in, in research and development, and have allowed um, you know, universities and sort of um, technological regions to, uh, uh, to sort of recreate themselves in, in new ways. And uh, what's happening now, of course, is that um, the the regions that were involved in it, the assembly, the lower order functions, and in China, for example, uh, that they are increasingly trying to move up the value chain, and that um, it's very very interesting to look at the uh, the role, particularly, of the Chinese state in all of this, because um, I mean the Chinese state uh, has been much more powerful as an agent in in the development of Industrial policy than in many other countries, partly because it's a huge country, and partly because uh, the market in China is of huge uh, significance to global corporations. And this has become even more, um, more sort of, uh, sort of significant in the last few years, post-crisis period, because of the, the lack of growth in, in the more advanced regions. But these, these corporations see their future in China. China is a country which is expanding. Obviously, at a much lower rate than it was previously, but it's still, you know, creating new cities, new airports, new infrastructure, and it, it requires, um, you know, quite a lot of um, of the products and the services and the, particularly the intellectual property that these global corporations control. Now, what's actually what I'm very, very interested in is the um, dialectic, if you like, between what global corporations who traditionally have had so much control over intellectual property. And have, been, have had the freedom of selecting you know, regions all around the world for their own, uh, to locate whatever particular tasks they wanted to locate there. But they're now facing increasing uh, pressure from the Chinese state, which in turn has its own objectives and wants to sort of, not only wants, but obviously is under huge pressure itself. Try to move out of low-value-added uh, functions and try to move up the value chain, because um, it's, it, China itself is losing uh, in relation to other regions because of the fact that its, um, it's actually labour market, its labour force is actually in decline and the costs are increasing all the time, particularly in the more urbanised uh, regions of China. And so, China is under significant pressure to try to sort of uh, you know, to try to exploit intellectual property. Uh, the problem as I, uh, I was mentioning earlier on in relation to say for example an area like semiconductors is that um it takes quite a long time for any partic- any particular country to build up the necessary intellectual property to be autonomous and china mm-hmm. uh, wants to be autonomous for many many different re- re- reasons and um, if you um if you will remember the snowden uh, revelations a few years ago and since that mm-hmm. time the technology sector particularly the foreign technology companies in China, have been sort of encountering significant problems in relation to access to the Chinese market. And one of the reasons for this is that China places, you know, a, a huge amount of emphasis on uh, the security of the state. and it, There's enormous control in China over mm. the technology sector, particularly anything to do with telecommunications, and, you know, this, um, you know, political activity, so the internet companies and so on. And it's fascinating to see how internet companies, Chinese internet companies have emerged that have become very, very significant players. They are, to some extent, working within a protected market. And meanwhile, the foreign technology companies that had sort of free reign in the Chinese market for maybe 30 years or more, are now beginning to face considerable competition and pressure now, I mean, if if the politicians in the United States and in Britain and so on don't appreciate the nature of how these changes are taking place, they're still going to be using you know, policies that had to do with Europe.
0: Yes, yeah, so clearly there are challenges ahead, but uh, I, I would like to. I remember when I was living in China 10 years ago, and every time I was back in Europe, uh, it was difficult to explain to my friends and my students in Europe that uh, the success of China was not just uh, because uh, of its dimension and huge manpower of cheap labor. And from your book, it emerged clearly that uh, to participate in global value chains of this complexity, you need to be rather smart and advanced. And uh, by the way, in the meantime, you also learn and improve your... Uh, your abilities Uh, but now you are uh, talking rightly about the issue of the the government so this is a story not only about uh, private corporations but also about the the state involvement Uh, and your book for example describes uh, um, this history from the accession of china to the world trade organization china is still not a proper full member Uh, so what what do you how do you see the current debate about uh, um, accepting a full uh, market economy status to china Within this um, topic of global value chain, and correctly also what you said about the role of the state in uh, handling very carefully, um, in particular the technological sectors. Uh,
1: well, it's, it's I mean I, I find that it's a fascinating topic, and um, it's not easy to be one hundred percent certain exactly what's actually going on in China, because for example at the moment there's enormous enthusiasm in China about artificial intelligence about new converging technologies and um, all sorts of new developments and so on. And to some extent, because the internet, the Chinese internet companies have, um, have expanded very, very significantly and um, have actually apl- applied the new technology in very, very innovative ways. Mm. It, 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 there is a sort of a, a dual situation in the country whereby On the one hand, they're applying new technologies very, very effectively. And they're, um, I mean, for example, the whole idea of the cashless society, for example, is much more developed in China than in other parts of the world. And um, so, um, but on the other hand, though, they're missing on some of the key foundations of um, key uh, sectors which feed into the ICT sector. For example, if you look at even the chemical industry in China, you might wonder what connection, because as well, obviously silicon, and um, there are many, many connections in chemical companies and ICT companies in terms of the manufacturing of products. And the problem in, in China is that some of the building blocks are still only being developed very, very slowly. And uh, I think one of the fascinating questions is you know, can a country that is really poor in terms of intellectual property in many ways? But is actually very, very successful in applying technology in a, in a very, very dynamic market. And it, in a market that's almost excluding, I mean very almost no foreign internet company has been successful in China. And people will explain that in different ways. You know, they will say that the foreign companies don't actually understand China, they don't understand the market. I think there's a lot to be said for that. But um but I think the question I'm posing is um you know whether a country can actually, you know, without having the the building blocks, the the necessary foundations the key intellectual property, uh, whether it can actually advance by just simply applying technology. Some people will say, many people will argue that um, it's absolutely essential for China to develop its own. Economy. And in fact, in the ten years or so that I've been looking at uh, China and sort of going going back and interviewing companies, sometimes the same companies over and over again. It's fascinating to see how foreign companies, you know, how their fortunes have changed uh, over time, and how it's become much more difficult for them. As I said previously, they had a very, very uh, easy time initially because there were no, there wasn't any you know, local technology companies. But you now have um, companies like Huawei, for example, which has now become basically overtaken Ericsson in terms of um, the market share. Mm-hmm. Global market share, uh, earning as much of its revenue outside of China as it is in China, and you've got other uh, a number of other companies like that that have been extremely successful. But some people will say that they have been helped by um, the particular situation, the market situation in China, where the state is still, as you say, as you were saying, it's not a really a free market situation. But um, actually, on that topic, again, one would not. You know, it's important not to be at all dogmatic about what's actually happening in China because more than anything else the Chinese china approach all of these things pragmatism they are very very pragmatic people and uh, even though sometimes you would wonder you know whether the state policy is uh, enlightened you know whether it's actually going to achieve what the objectives are in terms of sort of you know, one of the main objectives in terms of technology in China is um, autonomy you know, in other words, that China would have greater control over the technology sector. of I mentioned earlier on about issues of security and communications, and particularly the, the fundamental um, objective of China, which is shared by the majority of people, I would say, is that um, there is stability, political stability. And political stability in China means significant control over you know, certain areas of particular political activity, so you know, generally the model is that you can make as much money as you like, more or less, but um, you have to um, you have to conform if you like to how the state wants to actually run the system, how uh, it wants to ensure political stability and so on. So therefore, for example, you know, I mean, we have a very very open system in the West, you know, where everything is um, discussed in a very very open way, and we have sort of on the internet all sorts of uh, you know um, blogs and discussion groups and so on. But in China there's much greater control over that area for, for the of the nature of the system. That system is not going to change uh, anytime soon. If anything, it's becoming much more controlled in recent times. Um, but um, the thing, as I said, the question is you could ask yourself, I mean, do the Chinese policymakers are they making are they going forward in the right way? Some people will say that because of the level of control. Political control of the system. This is preventing local innovation, but there is a determination among Chinese policymakers to try to raise the level of innovation. And um, one of the things I did notice, you know, in my earlier trips, was the emphasis on speaking about indigenous innovation in China. So, mm-hmm. in other words, um, you know, that. the the state was becoming much more concerned about its dependence on foreign technology. And this is one of the themes that we explore a lot in the book. Um, I mean, I would suggest um, that um, people, one of the great topics uh, internationally these days is that of innovation. Of course, we understand that innovation is the basis of uh, of rapid economic activity and so on. But the point is, um, I think a lot of the discussion about innovation, particularly in relation to China, I think maybe some of it is misplaced because um, we're, sometimes we're not exactly clear what we're actually talking about in terms of innovation. And sometimes people will say that innovation in China is of a different nature. So um, mm. for, because of um, the problems associated with that particular debate, I have tended to focus much more on trying to benchmark China's dependence on foreign technology. I mentioned earlier on the example of the semiconductor sector, but there are other areas of dependence as well. And it's mainly a dependence on intellectual property. But the reality is that the design and the, the creation of new products and um, uh, of new technologies and so on, um, even though China is making uh, certain progress, particularly in the area of applying technologies, the fact is that... It has very little, a very poor record, really, of coming up with original, uh, original designs, original uh, products. And um, now, I, I'm not exactly sure how how the, its ability to apply technology in a, in a very, very innovative way in a very, very dynamic market, in which uh, non-Chinese companies find it almost impossible to compete, I'm not sure if that will help them, you know, to sort of eventually uh, through their investment. In, enormous investment in R&D and so on. But whether that will allow, and whether the political control in the economic system will allow for the necessary openness which and creativity you know, to allow yes. real innovation.
0: Yeah, this is true. And your colleague, uh, geographer Richard Florida, for example, might argue uh, that uh, China is not the perfect environment for, for creativity and innovation. But still, I insist, uh, uh, people that consider China uh, a place where creativity and innovation is uh, completely lacking because of uh, an authoritarian presence of the state and where people are not able to invent and to develop new ideas are wrong because still China in the past 20, 30 years has been a a, a very creative environment. And what you said, for example, about the cashless society uh, and artificial intelligence, uh, uh, facial recognition, mass facial recognition, in many, uh, many high-tech sectors China is now ahead. And this is not only uh, this this innovation after all. Um, But
1: now I would like to make uh, uh, a make it quick sorry but i just had a small point there um in, in some of the interviews that i've been doing in the last few years and um, there are two things that are emerging uh, one is that um some of the foreign companies uh, in china that you know that i say have significant control over key areas of technology and um areas like uh, chemical companies and so on related companies that they are very reluctant to collaborate with chinese companies um, and one of the reasons they're very reluctant to do that is because of the danger of losing intellectual property. Yes. And, um, you know, because there isn't, there, there, even though there is a, le- a very well-developed legal system now in China in terms of intellectual property, the application of that law is still quite weak. And so companies are very, very reluctant to, to trust um, their Chinese uh, customers and, and sort of collaborators and so on. So the, the, the level of, col- of trust and collaboration is still quite weak. Between those who control the intellectual property, and those who are dependent on it, and uh, so there are sort of issues like that. You know, and um, uh, it remains to be seen really how this is going to change. I mean, I I do think that some of the policy is is um, not it's not uh, as positive as it might be. I think some of the policy that is very focused on indigenous innovation uh, is very very can be very influenced by a sort of a nationalistic a nationalistic approach to technology. And to, uh, I mean, obviously, the Chinese state has complete control over what happens within China. But again, just like the, um, like the sort of what's happening in the advanced countries, where um, you know they feel they're losing control over um, internationalization of economic activity, in the case of China, it sort of wants to almost put a boundary around its own country and to sort of um, create this sort of indigenous technology in a world where technology is global. The, the nature of the, the technology is global. If you want to develop, uh, you, you semiconductors is what the most advanced semiconductors, This is a global activity. You can't almost. It's almost impossible to do it within a nation state. So, in some ways, there. Um, even though they have different objectives, uh, some of the political in the policy in both sides of the world uh, is sort of a bit blindfolded.
0: Yeah, I, your book, by the way, is full of interesting figures and. Uh to what you just said, we should add perhaps that uh, currently the flow of uh, foreign direct investment toward China and from China is, uh, is the same. So we are now in, uh, in a different stage of the story where uh, China going abroad uh, is uh, as powerful as the, the presence of uh, foreign companies in China. Somebody might be scared of this, but uh, it is happening now. And and also, I would like to to, just mention that, yes, you mentioned the Snowden case, and now there is uh, the American Parliament busy with uh, with Facebook. So, uh, even in terms of freedom and uh, the government, uh, all private corporations infringing uh, um, uh, the regulation on on data, Uh, also in the West, we have problems. And probably, perhaps now, uh, we can say that uh, China was wise to let their own uh, its own champions develop in the in these market, so having their own twitter their own facebook their own google before the their market becoming colonized by the American giants as instead happened in europe for example
1: well well actually uh, again in in some of the interviews I've done with um technology companies uh, china um one thing that's very very. interesting is that uh, in most cases, people uh, in the management of these companies are of Chinese background, and uh, they're either uh, Chinese born, or in, in, in other cases they are uh, ethnic Chinese. You know, they may have uh, grown up in America or something or not, and they've been, spent many years in China. And this is very very interesting because um, uh, in, in many cases, uh, what I've noticed in the interviews. Is that um, they empathise very, very strongly with what you know with China's objectives. That China is trying to rise as a nation. It's trying to do the best for its own people. It has huge challenges in many, many different areas: environmental challenges, uh, demographic challenges, all sorts of different challenges, which are, are very, very um, problematic, really. And you know, you're talking about one fifth of the, of the human population. So, um, but it is interesting that these managers. Who are trying to obviously um, you know make as much profit in China as they possibly can on behalf of their multinational company they empathize quite strongly with um you know the, the sort of the, the good objectives that China has. And in a certain sense they actually have their tensions between their headquarters and what their head how their headquarters see China, you know, looking at it from a distance. And uh, very often they they have great difficulty in trying to negotiate between the reality of China and how to do business in China and that often means of course um, doing business in China often means you know being having a certain closeness or networking with the um, government authorities and so on and uh, so there are very very interesting tensions you know within these corporations in China uh, because of the, d- the very very different uh, sort of cultural uh, perspectives that you find from the headquarters as opposed to the people the local people, who actually understand the culture better and who sort of appreciate you know, what China is um, you know, quite rightly trying to achieve as um, well. However, um, as I said, mentioned earlier on, one of, you know, I'm still questioning whether the, the Chinese policymakers are following the best, the most positive um, policies because in order to try to achieve what they want to achieve. because partly because they're not um, perhaps as sufficiently open to internationalization, as they might be, you know, in the sense of um, they have to create the conditions whereby uh, the owners of intellectual property are prepared to trust the local collaborators and, and to work with them and so on. Now, there are there are sort of, there is evidence of this happening, maybe in some sectors like, the, like the wind energy and the solar energy and so on. I think and um, through the um, the value chains that have been developed in China and through the the related supply chains, that there are more and more um, companies from outside China who are working with with Chinese companies. That sort of contradicts what I said a few moments ago about the reluctance to collaborate. But there are, in some sectors, there's a greater willingness to collaborate, partly because China has become so dominant in, say, in some of the, the energy sectors. And uh, over time, then there is a, a greater transfer of technology because basically, what China needs more than anything else is a higher level of transfer of technology, of know-how, from the companies that actually monopolise to some extent to the technology. And this can only happen if you have um, a more, you know, a sort of a more understanding policy environment, you know, which is not um, overly controlled, which is more open to um, negotiating, and bargaining position whereby you know, they, they understand they need it and they won't get it unless they uh, you know, have a sort of trust.
0: Well, uh, of course there are so many challenges and still your conclusions are rather optimist perhaps, uh, if I can say. Uh, in the very few lines uh, you say that there is a the pressure against the globalisation in the, in the West, uh, but this might... Uh, produce uh, negative outcomes for, for both sides, uh, and the current anti globalization reaction is not uh, providing alternative solutions. But you also say that, uh, for example, the Trump campaign uh, rhetoric uh, is uh, more powerful than the actual policy. So, uh, what he's yep. saying, what he's arguing, is actually much stronger than what he's doing in practice. And we also know that in the UK, I, I, many have changed.
1: Sorry? I think one of the main reasons for optimism is that. Um, Many of the young um, Chinese managers in China who are either running Chinese companies, particularly um, very innovative uh, small technology companies, for example, in, in um, driverless cars, for example, to see new areas like that, um, and also the, the Chinese managers uh, who are involved in multinationals as well. Many of these people, obviously, they're very, very clever people. And they're very, even though they they know they, they are operating within a certain political system, and they may have certain criticisms of that, You know, they're, they're aware of the limitations of that system and so on. But basically, these are people who appreciate the best technology globally. And they are very, very networked with Silicon Valley. And these are people who are, um, you know, they're, they're traveling all the time, and they are sort of, um, you know, they are uh, sort of exchanging ideas with the best uh, people in the technology sector around the world, and uh, this this is the reason for optimism. So, despite the fact that you have political constraints, not only within China but also in you know in Washington and and, and London as well, you know people who are still uh, their thinking is to some extent still influenced by older models. Um, however, having said that, you know I think we should be aware that many of the Chinese um, leaders have you know significant input from, from from the United States and other parts of the world. Many of the, the top people in China are very, very uh, aware of what's happening. But for political reasons, there are sort of two different dimensions, if you like, to what's going on in China. On the one hand, you've got the top-down you know policy area, which is very, very pragmatic and it's always evolving. And then at another, another axis is the sort of connections between people involved in, in the real world of business and uh, you know, nodes like Silicon Valley and other centers. So the, my my main reason for optimism would be that people will see you know, what works best is you know, what, what is produced by the, the most righteous people. There is um, a problem, however, in terms of the timing. It will take, I think, another, perhaps another 20 years, maybe 10 or 20 years, for the, um, the balancing of ownership of intellectual property from the more advanced regions of the world you know, to, to China, which will create then a much greater stability and a much greater level of trust, which will allow higher levels of collaboration.
0: Well, this is a, a very beautiful conclusion, almost a humanist uh, uh, conclusion. You you say uh, that people will probably find the solution before, before governments and before regulation and before... Uh, businesses themselves. Here in Oxford, two months ago, there was uh, Kai Fu Lee, and uh, he's one of the of the examples of the people that you uh, you refer to. Probably, he's cosmopolitan, uh, fully uh, fully citizen of the world, and able to bring to China or bring to California what is. Uh, uh, the state of the art required for that specific uh, um, business. So yes, let's 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 hope let's believe in in those type of people. Um, this was a very interesting conversation about a, a great book. Uh, congratulations for writing it. I am sure it will be very successful, in particular because it is so so timely. Um, this was uh, China and Global Value Chain, published by Routledge just now in 2018, and the authors are utah soon and we just spoke with professor humus grimes from uh, uh, national university of, of ireland in galway thank you very much